This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, June 30th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Courts have had a hard time keeping up with changes in technology and the changes in how police departments have made use of personal data without a warrant. In his new book, Habeas Data, Saru's Farivar provides a history of how courts have dealt with technology and privacy. We spoke earlier this month. In going through your book, uh, it seems that there's this key moment when it comes to protecting the privacy of Americans mm-hmm. where we move essentially from you know papers and effects where the the stuff is is printed or written down uh, and the technology doesn't exist and we move into a digital world and a whole lot of what we ought to think about as protections extending to these other uh, effects and the these other bits of data that we now send far in these far-flung places, that those protections just didn't come along. And uh, judges have been sort of slow, it seems, to uh, reckon with the idea that um, this is how we live and that at least some of those protections really ought to be uh, maintained. So can you walk me through some of the, the, the background here where you think were some key turning points and where we lost something with regard to protection of our information and, and privacy? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, in the book, I talk about uh, 10 Supreme Court cases, mostly Supreme Court cases um, that look at, at this kind of question. And this is actually a kind of a very old question that, that you're referring to, right? I was sort of fascinated to learn, and I talk about this briefly in the book, that in the early days of the 20th century, in the 1920s, almost 100 years ago, uh, in the Prohibition era, there was this case out of Seattle um, that goes by the name of Olmstead. And Olmstead, uh, it was a former Seattle police officer turned bootlegger, and he uh, you know, was running liquor all over the Northwest, and the federal government came after him as it was illegal at the time. And one of the crucial pieces of evidence that the government had against him was that they had a wiretap uh, and they captured his voice over his phone lines. And ultimately, as a lot of these cases are, right, they get challenged in court, goes up to the Supreme Court. Ultimately, uh, in the majority opinion, Chief Justice Taft uh, writes famously, uh, there was no searching, there was no seizure, right? So he viewed at that time in the 1920s that a wiretap, something that I think we would all feel would be incredibly invasive today, uh, and even not that much longer after uh, the Olmstead case happened, um, the court viewed that as not being a violation of the Fourth Amendment, which I think to us feels very, that idea feels very archaic um, and really out of date. Um, and yet in the 1920s, a century ago, um, the the idea was that the Fourth Amendment really turned on the question of physical trespass into physical space. Um, and the idea was there was that um, because his, you know, intangible voice was captured on sound, you know, as sound over a wire uh, beyond his property line effectively, then that did not constitute in his view and in the majority court's view uh, a search. Um, and so that that is sort of very strange. And I think one of the things that I didn't fully appreciate until I started this book and maybe, you know, people who are listening to this who are lawyers or maybe who have some legal training, maybe this is more obvious to, to them. Um, but it wasn't obvious to me when I started that there's this strange 
distinction in the law between what is considered a search and a capital S, you know, Fourth Amendment search and what is considered a non-search. And so like there's lots of things that are out there, whether it's a drone, whether it's a license plate reader, whether it's other kinds of technologies that can capture meaningful data and reveal uh, lots of intimate details about an individual without crossing that threshold into kind of Fourth Amendment territory. And so... Um, it's it's odd to I find it odd that you know we now live in a in a society where there are these technologies that do more than just go after people's papers in their desk drawers you know like Benjamin Franklin or whatever um, uh, and again in the early 20th century you had um, in a dissent uh, you had uh, Justice Brandeis saying you know giving and it's interesting one of my favorite things about going through this kind of legal history is that there are these kind of moments where judge where judges and justices are able to see into the future uh, or at least extrapolate into the future and say, right, so Justice Brandeis wrote, ways may soon be devised that, um, you know, without physically going into somebody's desk to remove papers. And you could argue that that's what, you know, uh, devices like a Stingray do now, right? They reach into our devices. They reach into things that are physically, right? I, I, I say this as I'm holding my cell phone in my hand, uh, things that are physically proximate to us and things that are very intimate to us. Um, so, so yeah, in many respects, the law, I think, doesn't always reflect that because we have this distinction between what is considered an, a, a, an allowed search, a reasonable search with a warrant or whatever versus something that, that doesn't. So in the Katz case, mm-hmm. which is, you know, critically important for this and sure. sort of, I guess, sort of realigning, uh, priorities or understanding uh, of courts, mm-hmm. Uh, what changed there? I mean, this was a wiretap case as well. Yeah, Katz wasn't exactly a wiretap case. It was. It was a um, at uh, to use the language of that era, uh, they d- they would describe it as a bugging case, right? So they're not they're not physically tapping the actual phone line, but what they're doing in Katz uh, is they're the the police and the FBI are putting um, recording devices, microphones on top of a phone booth Argu- or two phone Arguably booths. more invasive. Arguably more invasive. On top of a phone booth, two phone booths actually, uh, on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood in Los Angeles in 1965. Uh, and because this is the mid-1960s, you know, you have to imagine that the recording technology of the era, um, so it probably involved large, you know, reel-to-reel uh, recorders of some type um, that were probably bulky and awkward to, like, carry up and I'm trying to imagine what this would be look like like you know 1960s era you know G-men in their cool suits or whatever uh, climbing up a phone booth in Sunset Boulevard putting this thing up there ringing like up a large these box maybe. yeah like a large box or like or you know yeah and and they had to have somebody uh, while they were watching so Cat Charles Katz was a was a gambler he was somebody who liked to bet on college basketball games he would walk a few blocks down Sunset Boulevard, get to these phone booths, call his bookies on the East Coast, bet on college basketball and other things. And he would, um, you know, and so he uh, uh, he would get to, when he would do this, the, 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 the authorities would watch him as he would walk down to make these calls. And they would radio over to one of their colleagues and somebody would scramble up uh, to this phone booth and, you know, press record and record him uh, on the phone as he was making his bets, which I just think is kind of an amazing situation. But the court said? Yeah, sorry. So the the court said ultimately, as it reached the Supreme Court, the court found that while Americans in our, you know, founding documents, right, the word privacy doesn't appear in in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution Declaration of Independence. However, 
because of the Katz case, we now have something that is not quite 100% as a right to privacy, but we have something that's maybe a right right adjacent, right? So the, the, the phrase that the court came up with was a, quote, reasonable expectation of privacy. So just as when you are in your own home, when you're in your office, when you're in a taxi, when you're in a hotel room, you expect uh, that that is a private space. You don't expect that a government agent is going to be listening to your calls. And so the court said in the same way, a phone booth is like that. So if the police want to listen in on your phone calls, if they want to put a microphone on top of a phone booth, they have to get a warrant to do that. So uh, that notion, and we'll we'll continue with some cases here, but that notion of the reasonable expectation of privacy has always struck me as a little odd and fuzzy. Is that how you view it? Definitely. Uh, I think it's certainly fuzzy. Um, I mean... Because if a court says, well, you didn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy, and therefore, um, because the court just said it, it's not reasonable. Right. And, and that, then, that just seems like really right. And troublesome. Then, and then so once you start, you know, diving further into the legal weeds, uh, you realize that, uh, first of all, this question of, you know, reasonable to whom? Reasonable to society? Uh, and, and Justice Harlan, there's a famous concurrence in the Katz case where he outlines this two-part test um, uh, where and, and one of them is, uh, you know, where somebody had an objective reasonable expectation of privacy and that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable. Um, so what that has meant in practice is that, like, if you're a criminal and you're using false IDs to perpetrate crime and the police get your wallet with your fake IDs, for example, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that because you're doing stuff that's fraudulent. Um, if you are... Uh, and then there's other instances of, you know, do you do you reasonably expect um, can you reasonably expect that trash that you leave in your trash can outside your house, um, you know, that anybody, whether it's the police or your neighbor, uh, could open up your trash bin and rifle through. Do you expect there to be privacy in your trash? The courts have said, no, you don't. Um, you know, do you have a, an expectation of privacy when you are in public, when you walk down the street, when you drive your car down a road, uh, could the police uh, use either their own two eyes or a machine to monitor your movements or to to watch where you're moving around? Uh, the answer is no. The Supreme Court says you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy when you're in public. Um, I would say, though, that in the last 50 years, particularly in the last, let's say, 20 years, um, the technology has gotten so advanced that we now have, you know, we may understand that we all have these crazy computers in our pockets now, uh, and we understand that there are these weird things that can fly in the air called drones, but we don't understand kind of how the legal rationale kind of connects to that. So when uh, a lot of these cases were being decided, uh, uh, I guess as late as cats and maybe maybe beyond, mm -hmm. I, th I got to think there was an assumption that human beings would be installing individual pieces of equipment based on a particularized suspicion. But in the surveillance that we uh, see today by both uh, state authorities and federal authorities, that's not at all the case. That it, it is a broad sweep of information that is being collected. Right. And I think that that's very troubling. Um, and I think but that- But does that change the legal- uh, uh, rationales that courts are offering. It doesn't seem to in many instances. Um, but you think it should? I think it should. I mean, because I think that, yeah, if you go back to, to if you think about where, like what the Katz case was, right? A guy in a phone booth on Sunset Boulevard in LA, Hollywood. Um, the authorities had to expend quite a lot of time, 
quite a lot of resources, financial uh, resources, uh, quite a lot of manpower, right? They dispatched multiple agents to a place. To, they had to watch him. They had, not only were they monitoring the phone booth, they were monitoring his apartment. They went so far as to rent the apartment next door to him to, to watch him what, coming in and out of his own apartment. Um, they could hear him speak as he was uh, uh, talking on the phone uh, on his balcony uh, outside. Um, so this involved, you know, a months long investigation, um, you know, and, and there were a lot of resources that the FBI and the LAPD decided to devote to that case. Now we have a, we have technology that enables law enforcement, again, as you say, whether it's, you know, city, county, state, tribal, federal, anything to collect passively, right, to, to collect all kinds of information and data and be able to discern patterns about people um, that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do, right? So I talked about a moment ago that there is no reasonable expectation of privacy when you are in public. That is one of the cases I read about in the book, a case called Knotts, K-N-O-T-T-S. Um, I like to say that Knotts- These were methamphetamine producers in Minnesota. Yeah. So I like to, I like to if, if people have watched the TV show Breaking Bad, I like to think of Knotts as being the Breaking Bad version uh, but set in the 70s in Minnesota, right? So there's a guy who's a chemist. He's the, like, Walter White guy. He, there's a, a distributor guy. He's, like, the Gus Fring-type character. Uh, and these guys are making meth all in the Twin Cities uh, in the 70s. Eventually, they decide they're going to move their operation out of town, actually out of state, to Wisconsin. And they decide at one point that they're going to pick up uh, a barrel of chloroform, because I guess you need that to make meth. I've never tried. Um, but uh, unbeknownst to them... The police had put um, what's described as a beeper, a low-range FM transmitter, on the barrel. Uh, they take the barrel, they drive it 100 miles to Shell Lake, Wisconsin, and the police watch, uh, fo- physically following uh, with a car, tailing them, and also at one point bringing in a helicopter overhead to watch them wherever they were driving um, to reach their their little drug cabin uh, in Shell Lake, Wisconsin. And eventually, again, the case gets challenged. The Supreme Court ultimately rules that, no, there is no reasonable expectation of privacy in public. And they say, look, the police could have put 100 officers along this highway, um, which I think a lot of people might say, well, you know, yeah, they could have, but they didn't. They used this, uh, they used this piece of technology to aid them. And by today's standards, a physical device that's a low-range FM transmitter is relatively unsophisticated compared to you know, getting phone records, getting GPS data, uh, getting all kinds of other things. Um, and yet that same principle applies that, that uh, you know, the police can use, whether it's a license plate reader uh, against people um, and, and kind of passively at the touch of a button, forget about the helicopter, forget about, you know, sending an officer to tail him, um, but just literally somebody sitting at a screen and just looking uh, remotely. So um, let's jump forward. Sure. To U.S. v. Jones. Sure. This was an important case decided in 2012. Happened right here in Washington, D.C. And uh, Mr. Jones, Antoine Jones, mm-hmm. um, found himself the vic- And there are a lot of other sort of complicating circumstances here, but the main uh, issue was that police had attached a GPS tracking device to uh, his car. Right. And uh, that's the short version. Uh, Justice Antonin Scalia authored the opinion, who I think doesn't get enough credit from uh, people who otherwise dislike him on the left for being a defender of, pri- of privacy and of civil liberties in this arena. Um, he said, that's a search. Why? 
Well, because Justice Scalia and those uh, who agreed with him uh, said that if you are physically, I mean, because what the what the what uh, the Justice Department did in that case was they physically put a physical tracker. I think it would. I think it was described somewhere as being roughly the size of a deck of cards. I imagine it as being somewhat the size of a smartphone. Um, you know, affixed it to the undercarriage of his car, and so the. I think the idea there was. Uh, you needed a warrant. And in this case, actually, the police did have a warrant, but it was expired and it was for the wrong district or they installed it in the wrong district. So effectively, that meant there was no warrant at all. So they could have gotten a new warrant and they chose not to. Um, and, you know, so for him and for a lot of other people, really, the 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 uh, analysis begins and ends with the question of physical trespass. You know, we were talking about Olmstead earlier. Uh, there was no searching, there was no seizure about the wiretap in Seattle. Um, Justice Scalia, and I think others like him, would say that's kind of the first part of the question. And, you know, was there a trespass? In this case, yes, there was, very clearly. Um, end of story, right? There was a trespass onto this dude's private property. Get a warrant. Get a warrant. Full stop. I mean, that was that was literally right. from the majority right. opinion. Get a warrant. Right, right, right. And other justices said, you know, um, uh, Justice Alito, Justice Sotomayor, you know, they all like, reached the same result. It ended up being a 9-0 opinion saying, you know, the answer to the question, can the police put a GPS tracker on your car without a warrant? The answer unanimously was no, you can't. Um, and so, uh, so it's interesting that within the last decade-ish, uh, we are now getting, I think, uh, you know, we've had two recent cases. You talked about Jones and there's another one that's also in the book, this case called Riley versus California, uh, that involves the search of a cell phone. And the question there was, can the police without a warrant, um, if somebody's being arrested, incident to arrest, as they say, uh, incident to arrest, can somebody's phone be searched without a warrant? The court found unanimously, no, you can't. Um, also, also get a warrant. Right. <laughs> Probably stated right, in that right. opinion. And, and it's interesting because... Uh, you know, in that case, in the in the uh, you know, so in the GPS case, they likened that to uh, the government said, well, you know, we didn't need a warrant because we can, you know, we could have deployed however many officers to watch him. Right. We could have tailed him. We could have put a plane overhead. We could have done a number of things which they didn't do because those cost money and resources and other things. And guess what? It's a hell of a lot cheaper to put a GPS on the guy's car and just have somebody kick back in an office and watch where he's going. And and they argued they didn't need a warrant to do what they did right. because they could have spent resources doing it. Right. But they didn't. Right. Uh, and so and so in there's there's a sense there are some cases here at least you detail. I, I, I'm getting some of these mixed up a little bit, but you detailed at one point because this the because the police would argue that this was not a search, and in some cases, judges might say this was not a search, mm -hmm. um, and because it was legal for the police to engage in this kind of surveillance mm -hmm. on an ongoing basis using this technology, and it was legal, then it was it is therefore legal for the police to do that to any of us at any time for essentially any reason. Right. So that is the the argument. The argument that you've just now outlined is the argument that was made um, in by a FISA court judge 
that validated the NSA Section 215 metadata program that was exposed by Edward Snowden. Um, right. So for people who maybe don't remember, that was the program that um, had been going on from 2001 until 2015. Uh, it continues today in a modified form where no longer the government holds the phone data, but rather companies can get it. Companies keep it and the government can get it um, by presenting a court order to to get at it. Uh, but previously, uh, the uh, the government kept years worth of all of our metadata, right? That you called me, I called you, you called your dad, whatever, uh, for years on end about all of us. And that's, if you imagine, right, there's 330 million Americans or something uh, for years on end, that's a ton of data. And you can learn quite a lot. If you looked at all of my call records over the last 15 years, you'd learn quite a lot about me. Um, and so the reason why that is legal uh, is based on this this legal phrase, or so we mentioned the reasonable expectation of privacy. There's this other phrase uh, that's known as the third party doctrine. The third party doctrine says, if I call you and I use Verizon cell phone network to do it, the fact that I have incorporated a third party Verizon into this equation, that I don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the fact that I have called you. Uh, and that case, that phrase comes from a Supreme Court case from the 1970s called Smith versus Maryland, which is a late night mugging. It's a woman who gets mugged on her doorstep in Baltimore late one night. And the mugger decided that not only was he going to steal this lady's purse, but he also was going to make harassing phone calls to her and continually make harassing phone calls. And eventually they were the police were able to get three days worth of this guy's call records through something called a pen register, which is effectively a call log, what we would now call metadata. Um, and because of that, this FISA court judge found many decades or, you know, three decades later, essentially, that if it holds that Mr. Smith in Baltimore in 1975 didn't have a privacy interest, didn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in his three days worth of call records, the police did not need a warrant to obtain that, then it follows that the NSA can capture all of our phone records forever, essentially. Um, and you could extrapolate that, I think, out to, you know, if there is no reasonable expectation of privacy in public, which is what allows currently uh, the use, the common use of license plate readers um, that are in use in cities big and small across America, you could imagine... Uh, a very near future where police say, okay, uh, we're just going to put, you know, drones over everyone's house or over, you know, city centers or over stadiums or whatever. Snap photo. Snap right. And this already is happening uh, in maybe not with drones in kind of a blanket sense, but there is a company from Ohio uh, called Persistent Surveillance Systems that does exactly this. They fly um, planes up at 10,000 feet. Uh, they've tested them in Compton, California, in Dayton, Ohio, where they're from. Uh, they tried to test them, I think, in Miami, but ultimately didn't didn't do it. Baltimore as well. Um, and following Freddie Gray. Following Freddie Gray, right? And what this what they describe this this plane as doing as is as essentially a TiVo in the sky. It's essentially something that is looking down at the ground, watching. It doesn't see my face or your face. Uh, but it sees, you know, it can identify this red car, this person wearing a, you know, this, you know, Washington Nationals baseball hat or whatever, you know, moved from A to B to C to D. And it can just see in a sort of video game God's eye view where everybody is going. And they say, look, we don't know that it's 
Sarus Faravar that, you know, walked over to the Cato Institute on this day, but we know that this guy wearing this one silly hat, you know, went went and did all these places. Um, so they would say that because there's no expectation of privacy when you're in public, uh, that it's fine, basically. Let's bring those together. In the Jones case, I believe it was Sonia Sotomayor who sort of talked about the third party doctrine yeah, that's right. in her separate concurrence. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, and in a case that is currently before the Supreme Court, Carpenter v. United States, mm-hmm. um, I believe uh, Justice Gorsuch has raised the idea of um, Americans having a property interest mm-hmm. in their in the data, right. even when they've passed it on right. to third parties. Right. So, is there a changing view of the legitimacy of the third party doctrine as just not working and functioning with? the way Americans live their lives today? Because it seems like a property interest and the third party doctrine being sort of you know, illegitimate based upon how we live and right. how we communicate with each other, that seems to be, it's a big deal to a lot of Americans. Yeah. And it seems to be a big deal to at least two members of the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, I think with, you know, Jones, as we were talking about earlier, and Riley, the San Diego uh, case, um, which both unanimously, 9-0, the court found in favor of privacy. I think there's a good chance, as you say, that with Justice Gorsuch, with with Justice Sotomayor, and perhaps others, I do, I'm reasonably hopeful that we'll get, uh, you know, at least the court to say definitively, you know, so in, in the case of Carpenter, as you brought up, what that case is about is in some ways um, kind of the modern analog to the Katz case from, from uh, 1967. Carpenter involves a bunch of guys that are robbing radio shacks and cell phone stores in Michigan and Ohio back in 2010. Um, they're stealing the latest iPhones and the latest Android phones. And one of the, the defendants, uh, little Tim Carpenter, uh, as he's known, there's also a big Tim and a Tim Tim because I guess you need three different Tims in your gang. Um, little Tim is uh, the um, is the one who's challenged this, and and what the what the government was able to do was access, obtain through a court order, 127 days worth of his cell site location information. In other words, where his phone has been over that long period of time. And it showed that, yeah, he was at the scenes of the crimes, um, but it also showed that he was at church on Sundays and that he was, you know, at his grandma's house on other days and that he was, you know, doing various other things that had no relevance to the crime that he was accused of. And so the question before the court now is, is it okay for the government to obtain this volume of information about somebody uh, showing their intimate um you know, movements through through time and space uh, without getting a warrant first. Um, and so right now, the law would say, or I think there's a compelling argument based on, as, as you were saying, the third party doctrine that, um, you know, that that would hold true, that, that if you follow that logic, that that would hold true. But as Justice Sotomayor said previously in Jones, it is, in her words, I think she said it's ill-suited to the digital age, um, which I think is really important and interesting that when you introduce new types of technology that were not even conceived of in the 1970s, um, that that really changes the equation. I don't think anybody uh, or very few people actually, um, uh, people in the 1970s would have imagined uh, the type of capabilities that the government would have today. Uh, so we're, we're 
as we speak, we are awaiting a decision in the Carpenter case, um, which seems to offer many opportunities for the court to sort of uh, bring the government's abilities in line with uh, what Americans should be able to expect mm-hmm. uh, is covered by their uh, certain inalienable rights. Right. Um, are you hopeful that uh, courts will begin to grapple with this properly and that we can uh, get control of our information a little more, a little better? I, I'm hopeful that, you know, I think we now have Jones and Riley that um, I think establish a very clear direction that the court is going in. I don't know that the court necessarily will go so far as to overturn the third party doctrine in Carpenter, although. Uh, I may be wrong about that, but um, it, it seems unlikely that they would go that far. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, there have been other judges, whether at the at the Supreme Court, at circuit courts, at the district court level and elsewhere. Um, you've seen judges, I think, starting to pay closer attention to what the certain technology is, how it works, what it does, what it doesn't do, what it collects, what it doesn't collect. Um, but also, you know, one of the things that I came away with from the experience of doing this book was when I first started, I think my sort of gut reaction was that something that I think maybe a lot of people have instinctively, which is like, you know, a lot of these judges, they're really old and they're out of touch and they don't know what's going on. And, you know, they don't understand what a what a stingray is. They don't understand what GPS tracking is. They don't understand what it what metadata is, all these things. Um, but then as I started to do more research, I realized that the better way to or a better way uh, to to go about this is to not rely so much on the Supreme Court. I mean, the Supreme Court's important, certainly, but if we think about Carpenter, the facts of Carpenter took place eight years ago, and the technology in that intervening time has gotten so much better. I don't know about you, but my cell phone has gotten a lot better in the last eight years. Um, and so if, if you imagine out to everything, drones, surveillance technology, it's all gotten significantly better in the last eight years. So by the time it reaches, by the time a case reaches the Supreme Court or even an appellate court, you know, years, sometimes a decade has gone by. And so I think it's really more incumbent upon, uh, you know, ideally the federal government, but otherwise states and cities and counties um, to impose meaningful oversight, um, which is something that's being done right now in my home city of Oakland, California, where they're say they. Oakland, interestingly, I'm as far as I know, this is the only city in America that does this. There is now a Oakland Privacy Advisory Commission. Their job is to be a privacy watchdog against the police. Um, so if the police want to acquire drones, future scary DNA scanners, or like any kind of anything that potentially impinges on privacy, they have to come before the Privacy Commission. They have to present it. They have to say, here's what it is. Here's what it does. Here's what it doesn't do. Um, we're going to delete extraneous information. We're going to come up with a policy. They have a whole discussion about it. There are open meetings that are open to the public. And then after the fact, the police has to come back every year and present a report and say, hey, we arrested 100 people. We prosecuted 20 of them. Uh, we deleted, you know, a gazillion terabytes of data, whatever. Um, and I think that's a really interesting idea is that is that it, it you know, and obviously we should rely on the courts to, to let to help us understand when the, the authorities have overstepped. Um, but if we do a little bit more on the front end, the government needs permission. Yeah. Is what you're saying. Yeah. And I, I think that that's a great model. And, and you can have I think uh, we can have reasonable disagreements over, um, you know, what is the appropriate use of this or that technology? Under what conditions do we want 
uh, you know, this type of, of tools to be used, right? So Oakland is a city, uh, like I think a lot of cities in America, that experience very serious violent crime. Uh, on average, something like 80 people are murdered per year in Oakland, a city of 400,000 people. Um, I want the police to be able to go after people who are murdering people and conducting under heinous crimes. Um, at the same time, I don't want, uh, you know, people's, you know, I my preference would be that they wouldn't collect everyone's license plate when they use license plate readers, you know, as much as they do, uh, or other kinds of things. And I was at one of these privacy meetings where there was a discussion between the privacy commissioners and the liaison to the police department where they were debating what is the appropriate length of time that we should be allowed to keep license plate reader data. Uh, currently, the, the city uh, policy is six months, um, which was only created a couple of years ago. Prior to that, they had no policy, which effectively meant they were keeping it indefinitely for years, on, four or five years on end. Um, the police officer, or the police liaison, I should say, he's not a uniformed OPD officer, he was making the case that he's like, look, anybody who lives in Oakland knows that the police is understaffed, uh, that we treat nonviolent property crime as a pretty low priority because we have a lot of really important, serious other things to worry about. So that means if your house gets burglarized and your TV gets stolen, that's not a big priority for us. We're very backlogged. We're understaffed. So we're, we're right now seven or eight months backlogged uh, for those kinds of crimes. So I would prefer, as a representative of the, of the police department, I would prefer a nine-month retention policy versus six months, which is what they currently have. Um, and, you know, that's not totally crazy. That's like a reasonable... But it's an argument that needs to happen before. Exactly. Exactly. Sarus Farivar is author of Habeas Data. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 